Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, part two of our series on the future of history. The goal is to create a digital biographical dictionary for every single person of all ethnicities who lived in Florida, who together created Florida society. We'll discuss William Darby's 1821 Memoir of the Geography and Natural and Civil History of Florida. This is one of the first very kind of condensed versions of all the information that have been gathered about Florida, including cartography. And we're going to Disney World. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Last week, we started a conversation about the future of history with some of the leading digital historians in the state. Joining us again for part two of our series is Connie Lester from the University of Central Florida, Julian Chambliss from Rollins College, Lori Taylor from the University of Florida, Scott French from UCF, and J. Michael Francis from the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. As we discussed last week, digital technology is changing our approach to the study of history, but some things remain the same. Traditional historical research involves going to libraries and archives to crack open old books and wade through archival boxes of primary source documents. It can be a thrilling, tactile experience. Digital historians say that's not going away anytime soon. No, absolutely not. Um, For one thing, um, everything hasn't been digitized. Um, and I tell my, um, my graduate students that all the time. So if they're do- working on a thesis uh, or a dissertation, uh, they need to actually go to the, to the library. Um, oftentimes, even in a collection, everything in the collection has not been digitized. Uh, and there are areas that have, a, have been very poorly digitized to this point. Um, one of the areas where I work, that being agricultural history, um, that's among the last things to get digitized. Um, there are areas of history that are digitized very quickly because there is lots of demand for it. Um, but you still have to go. And there is something about seeing the document, about holding it in your hand, um, that is, is awe-inspiring at some level. Um, so I always tell my students, yes, you still need to go to the archives. Archives are not passe, um, nor do I expect them to be. I think that is still happening. In fact, one of the things I always do in my classes, we always go to the archive, we actually handle the material. Uh, even though we have a big digital collection at Rollins, we always go to the archive, we handle the actual material. That is actually something that is important because when we talk about what's being digitized in archives, it's actually a really complicated story. The things that are being digitized tend to replicate the things that have been written about. And so to really get at stories that are, that are gonna create a more holistic, gonna help create those new interpretations, we have to go to material that may not be digitized. And maybe one of our digital projects 
is to digitize it, right? Like students can be really great co-collaborators and researchers in the process of bringing a hidden collection to the public. So one of the things that's super exciting about the digital humanities, the more people are going to the archives, and even people who didn't, you know, people who are media studies or film studies, are people who are more modern history, and so they haven't had the same archival experience, even as faculty, as scholars. And then they're saying, well, we're doing this digital stuff. Well, these things are out of copyright, or, you know, there's someone who's interested in my work. The digital opens into that opportunity, and so we're seeing more classes go to the archives, um, local archives. And then the thing that's really phenomenal with digital humanities Everyone that I've ever heard report on it and all of the research that I've seen on it, if you take your digital class to the archives, that's the day where you're guaranteed a transformative experience, where the students' eyes light up and they're like, oh, this is what we're doing. Now I understand it. And it's so exciting to see that in their eyes. And then they get passionate, even more passionate and inspired. And so I've seen students working in the archives go on to write successful Fulbright grants, go on to other, you know, NGO, different careers that are enabled by that transformative moment. It's fantastic. For the classroom experience that I'm trying to create, uh, the digital is the starting point. I think a lot of times what I ask the students to do is say, what's available here, what's missing too? Uh, what has been digitized, but also what has not been digitized? And so they learn to sort of critically examine these digital resources and think about how they can add to collections. A lot of what we do in the classroom now is get the students to work in physical archives, digitize the materials, and bring them into a digital space for sharing. So they become historians. They're doing the work of historians, not just consuming the material that others have scanned for them, but helping to produce new archives that can be used by the general public, by teachers, by anyone really. I caution students that what is available online remains but a fraction of what is available on paper. And just in terms of the numbers of archival repositories around the world that have collections related just to colonial uh, Florida history uh, is staggering. And to think that all of that material, published and unpublished, is only available online is really one of the, the first comments I make to students, that they, they need to understand that it represents just a tiny fraction of what's out there, and not to think that all digital then now uh, contains uh, all known information. We are, I, I don't see us getting there uh, in my lifetime or even a, a next lifetime. All of the new technology available today is posing ethical questions about proprietary information versus public information. It has opened up questions and we're trying to solve them as we go along. So um, in the project I work on, we get permission from each person. We um, interview for artifacts that they have digitized for us to use. We're very careful about using um, personal information we aren't opening a doorway into someone's home or someone's life. This is a huge question for us as we work in the digital realm. We often talk to students about copyright. Uh, there's a huge discussion we have to have with them all the time. They actually have grown up in a, in, a, in a landscape where everything is free, or at least they think of it as free. They don't actually understand the costs associated with things. The things that are free aren't actually free. You're paying with it with your identity and your privacy information. Um, but for archival information that is out there, identifying who owns the copyright, if you're going to use that information into a, in, in a project, depending on the platform you're on, there could be really strict user restrictions around rights and things like that.
A lot of it deals with FERPA, the Federal, Federal Educational Rights and Privacy Act, um, so our student privacy. We have all these opportunities to engage in really public ways um, and to do awesome public scholarship, but if we do that, how do we have this community, how do we have the classroom space as a, a space that's experimental um, and where students can fail, really gloriously fail, um, but that's a great learning experience. There are a lot of issues about uh, access to copyrighted materials um, and materials behind paywall. I think that's one of the issues that we teach in digital history classes is uh, for all of the great promise of digital history, there are a lot of barriers. And um, there are ethical issues as well about the materials that we post. We work very hard when we digitize collections that belong to private individuals or local organizations to get full permission to use them. And that we want those people in the community who are sharing their historic resources to know how we're going to be using them. Who can see this? How can they use it? And usually if we explain that, people understand and feel, they feel good that the material that maybe was sitting in a closet somewhere can have some value for future generations. I think making material available, uh, democratizing in a sense uh, the, the academic field uh, so that anybody uh, has access to this material, I think is, is a laudable uh, goal uh, for, and we certainly see archives aiming to do that for preservation uh, and for accessibility. And, and I certainly appreciate that I can look at material now online that 20 years ago one had to go to Seville, uh, to the Archive of the Indies, or Madrid, or London, uh, and yet you can get that material just clicking onto a database online, and that's magical. Florida colleges and universities are creating a wide variety of exciting digital history projects. Connie Lester is director of the Riches Project in the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. Riches is an interdisciplinary effort that records and preserves the documents and stories of Florida communities, businesses, and schools. The way Riches works is through partnerships. So uh, various departments at the university, um, museums and archives work with us to provide the project information and the artifacts that go in the database. And then we work with various um, tech firms uh, as well who help us with the technology and specialized pieces of equipment that we need. Students at Rollins College, under the direction of history professor Julian Chambliss, have engaged in a variety of digital history projects. Perhaps most notable is the online reconstruction of the African-American newspaper, The Winter Park Advocate. We've done a few different things. Um, probably the one that's uh, sort of like top of mind is a project called Advocate Recovered, which is a sort of digital recovery project. It focuses on an African-American newspaper that was published in Winter Park in the 1890s. Uh, the paper was thought to be sort of like lost. There were about two copies, one physical copy in our library, one physical copy in Winter Park Library, then some, some fragments on microfilm. But through some work, working in the archive with students, I came to realize that in fact, there's a significant chunks of this newspaper in scrapbooks. Lori Taylor, digital history librarian at the University of Florida, has helped to create interactive maps of Florida and the Caribbean. 
with digital history, I've done a number of things. Um, so as a librarian, some of it is um, making the connections, being the facilitators. Li libraries are the labs of the humanities and the, really the labs of all research um, because we provide that foundational research access to then posit, develop uh, new questions and ways to, um, to pursue inquiry. And so working with digital history courses, developing scalar books, um, developing online exhibits, uh, documentaries, podcasts, many other things. Scott French is professor of digital and public history at the University of Central Florida. Listeners to this program will recognize the name of one of his graduate students. Holly Baker is a regular contributor to Florida Frontiers. Well, one of our MA thesis candidates, Holly Baker, is doing a really exciting project where she's tracking the song collecting journeys of Zora Neale Hurston and others uh, in the 1930s around the state of Florida and using a digital mapping interface. And so you can actually follow these journeys, click, listen to the music, listen to the interviews, see the photographs, and, and get a sense of what it was like to move around Florida virtually. J. Michael Francis is professor of history at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, and specializes in Spanish colonial history. He's helped to develop the exciting online resource La Florida Digital Interactive Archive. The goal is to create a digital biographical dictionary for every single person of all ethnicities who lived in Florida, who together created Florida society. Uh, Native Americans, people of African descent, Europeans, not just Spaniards, but Portuguese, French, German, Italian, Greek. With technological advancements being made almost daily, the future of history looks bright in the hands of creative digital historians like Connie Lester, Julian Chambliss, Lori Taylor, Scott French, and J. Michael Francis. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, shop for great books on the history and culture of Florida, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series Florida Frontiers, and much more. While you're there, you can subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Ludwig von Beethoven wrote the Piano Sonata No. 31 in A-flat major, Opus 110, in 1821, the same year that Florida was named a United States territory. 1821 was also the year that William Darby wrote his Memoir of the Geography and Natural and Civil History of Florida. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, who was William Darby? 
Well, William Darby is not one of those names that most Americans and, frankly, most Floridians uh, would recognize at least immediately. But his work was hugely important and influential on later Floridians, uh, explorers and settlers that came into the state beginning in the early 19th century. Uh, Now, Darby was not originally from Florida. He was actually born in Pennsylvania in 1775, right in the middle of uh, the, the revolutionary period. So he was kind of born into conflict. His family moved to West Western Pennsylvania, and he grew up, at least his formative years, on the what was then considered the American frontier. Uh, they were essentially out in the wilderness, and it wasn't until much later that uh, he moved uh, uh, further south and started exploring parts of the southeastern U.S., including Florida. But it was during this time period, during his formative years, that Darby really gained an appreciation for the frontiersman, the American frontiersman, and that idea of moving civilization further west, of development, of, of conquering the wild, the wild frontier. So in many ways, Darby is, is emblematic of the, the idea that we, we now call Manifest Destiny, that it was uh, destined for, for Americans to kind of conquer this land. So he left Western Pennsylvania with this idea. He wanted to embark on his own adventures. Uh, so as a young man, he actually came down to, uh, to Louisiana, which at that time, uh, beginning in the, the early 19th century, right around 1800, uh, was still relatively unexplored. And Darby figured out that the best way to go ahead and get his feet wet, I guess, in, in the wilderness was to become a surveyor. It was a dangerous job at that time, and it was was fraught with all kinds of, of peril, but uh, there was also uh, an opportunity, at least, for some profit. Uh, so not only would he get his uh, experience in the wilderness, but he may actually be able to turn a profit and fulfill some of his some of his dreams. So he spent a lot of time in and around Louisiana uh, in the first decade, at least, of the 19th century, produced a series of maps, and became quite adept at cartography uh, and at surveying, and he met a lot of people along the road, including Andrew Jackson. Uh, When the War of 1812 broke out and and Jackson was involved in the Southern campaigns and just before the Battle of New Orleans, it was Darby who was involved in the engineering efforts for the defenses of the Battle of New Orleans. In fact, Jackson even identifies Darby personally as being an exceptional engineer in that effort. Uh, So he spent a lot of time in Louisiana, and that's where we believe he first came to Florida. Uh, He was in Pensacola and was involved in in the uh, attack on Pensacola. Uh, So he uh, spent a lot of time in and around Pensacola Bay. He created a, a really one of the first detailed surveys of that region. And we believe that he, it was during this time period that he kind of uh, first fell in love with the, the wilds of, of Florida. Now, he never really came back. So after that time period, he went to Philadelphia, uh, became involved in the printing industry, produced a number of guidebooks for settlers in the western part of the United States, and continued to promote that ideology, this, this manifest destiny ideology. Now, you have here today a, a very old document. Is it a first edition of Darby's work? It is. This is a first edition of his memoir of the geography and natural and civil history of Florida. Now, that's the condensed title. Uh, It was published in 1821, but he began this effort actually in 1819. Uh, And in 1819 is when the United States first began the agreement that would become the Adams-Onis Treaty, eventually ceding Florida to the United States. So it was published really at the right time. Again, thinking about this idea of manifest destiny, of of America kind of conquering the wilderness and taking over uh, huge swaths of the continent, including now Florida, which completed, you know, the eastern seaboard. Uh, So in 1821, the book came out and was uh, very popular. Uh, It was uh, an interesting, very detailed, very descriptive account 
of not only the the history of Florida, which is sort of bullet pointed. He goes through kind of the uh, early Spanish explorations and gets into the beginnings of, of European colonization in Florida, the British period, and so on and so forth. But he also spends a large portion of the memoir on the climate and the suitability or adaptability of certain commercial crops in Florida. Um, so this is one of the first very kind of condensed versions of all the information that had been gathered about Florida, including cartography. Now, again, he was a surveyor, so he included a very detailed, beautifully created map that was part of the original memoir and also included these very, even today, accurate descriptions of square mileage, of coastlines, of the uh, sea level throughout the state. And in fact, I'll, I'll read just quickly one quote, at least, that, that uh, we find very descriptive and would actually influence developers later on. Uh, it says here, quote, Savannah or prairie land in Florida is in the strictest mere varieties of swamp. Swamps or marshes next to pine woods cover the largest portion of Florida, unquote. So if you think about that, most people would read this memoir and start thinking about the entire peninsula as a mere swamp. And in order to conquer this wilderness, one would have to drain parts of what they consider the swamp or the marshland. And, and that's really what happened about a century later. There were massive drainage efforts throughout a huge portion of the state of Florida. Now, if anyone would like their own copy of this book, it's republished by the Florida Historical Society Press, right? Yeah, that's right. In 2005, the Florida Historical Society Press decided to create a facsimile of this uh, original volume because it had, of course, uh, gone out of print well over a century and a half before uh, with a new introduction by Dr. Joe Kinesh. Uh, and it's really a wonderful addition to anyone's Florida history library. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. For nearly five decades, the presence of Walt Disney World in Florida has had a significant impact on the history of our state. Here with more is Holly Baker, a graduate student in the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. In Florida, we have the Ringling Circus Museum. We have Gibson Town, which for a long time was the wintering place of a lot of the sideshow performers. We have spiritualists in Casa Daga. Florida was recently named the weirdest state. We have all of this kind of interesting, subversive, marginal Florida cult classic kind of thing. And then we have Walt Disney World, which is very clean and pristine and beautiful and expensive and it's a big movie set so it's very sanitized and so kind of the juxtaposition of those two worlds is fascinating to me. That was art historian Dr. Carrie Watson. I recently sat down with Dr. Watson who talked to me about Walt Disney and his vision for the theme park Walt Disney World which opened near Orlando, Florida in 1971. Walt Disney World differed from other amusements such as fairs, carnivals, and sideshows that were popular in Florida at the time. As Dr. Watson explains, Disney's new Florida venture also differed from his theme park in Anaheim, California, called Disneyland. After Disneyland opened in Anaheim, it was, of course, a huge success. And from the beginning, Walt was very conscientious of wanting to have this controlled environment. 
He specifically did not want his theme parks to be anything like the amusement park of Coney Island. And he had bought up 160 acres in Anaheim for Disneyland. You know, it was very successful, very popular. People were driving there. It was at the confluence of several highways. This is, of course, also the post-World War II building boom, suburbs, car culture, the highway system. And he had a study done by an economist at Stanford University showing that most of his visitors to the park were people who lived west of the Rockies. But the majority of the United States population, of course, lived east of the Rockies. So he began looking for a site for an East Coast venture. Walt Disney began looking for potential locations for his new theme park in New Jersey, Florida, and in St. Louis, Missouri. He settled on Florida, due in part to the year-round pleasant weather. Another draw for Walt Disney was Orlando's growing highway system, including Interstate 4, which was under construction at the time. Dr. Watson has more about the Florida project. So there are several sites that were looked at, but by 1959, he had pretty much decided on Florida. He called it the Florida Project. And by um, 1963, he had started buying up land. And one of the things that disappointed him about Disneyland was that, well, it was very successful. He only had 160 acres. They did build a berm around it that protected it from the outside. But still, you know, all of the seedier motels and souvenir shops sprung up all around the park. And he didn't want that. Um, That wasn't part of his vision. So in um, Florida, he actually bought 27,000 acres. So he began secretly buying that up under various corporations so that there wouldn't be a a land boom, so he could continue to get that property at at good prices. Um, And he even lobbied the state to form the Reedy Creek Improvement District. And this basically gave the Walt Disney Company the rights of a municipal city government so that they could completely control the theme park to make it this other world. Walt Disney's vision for Walt Disney World included Epcot, an acronym that stands for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, a utopian city of the future. Walt Disney conceived of Epcot as an actual city where people could live and work. Dr. Watson tells us more about Walt Disney's vision for Epcot. For the Florida Project, Walt always envisioned Epcot. He really saw this as what we would today call maybe a work-live play space, right? where it was a utopia. It was a city of tomorrow. It actually originally, even in his first plans, had a dome over it that would be climate controlled. So you could be, you know, insulated from the humid, hot, mosquito, Florida weather. Epcot today is not what he envisioned. What Epcot is today is much more like a world fair, which is an also uh, important precedent, I think, for both amusement parks and theme parks, the history of world fairs. To the moment he died in his hospital bed, he was drawing plans for Disney World. It's hard to know exactly what it would have been like had he gotten to live to see it to its fruition. Epcot never became the city of tomorrow that Disney envisioned. Walt Disney passed away in 1966, several years before Walt Disney World opened. Still, as Dr. Watson explains, Walt Disney World forever changed both the theme park industry and the state of Florida. Walt Disney World has been incredibly impactful on this region. Before Disney, this was cattle and oranges, orange groves, agriculture. And because of the way Florida had this rapid development, 
and specifically Central Florida, tourism became a major industry. Because of the building of Walt Disney World and because it's an art and cultural attraction, many people, many local residents, as well as, of course, international travelers, go to Walt Disney World for their holiday parade, uh, for a festival of lights, for a concert or theatrical performance, or just for their leisure, for all of their leisure and entertainment. Even though Walt Disney did not live to see what would become of Walt Disney World, the theme park is known today as the happiest place on Earth and is one of the most visited tourist destinations in the world. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook, where you'll find our daily posts today in Florida history. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Robert Casanello and Ben DiBiase. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.